Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. You're out of touch, I'm out of time, but I'm out of my head when I don't listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank my friends Hall & Oates for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a Raw Bone podcast. This is the only wicked good podcast out there. It's the People's Podcast. It's the Major League of Professional Wrestling Podcast. Before we get rolling, and we do have a really good show on tap today, I want to invite everyone to join us on the Stick to Wrestling Facebook page. If you just go to Facebook, do a search, ask to be put in, and we will put you in. More on this in a minute. We didn't stick to wrestling again this week. Uh, I provided the best albums of 1977, the 40 best. If you want to find out what number one is, you got to join the Facebook group. More music-related stuff in a minute. Also, follow me on Twitter. I don't always stick to wrestling, but just search for John McAdam. Follow the guys who have dudes fighting with chairs in his avatar. I also want to say wherever you are, be safe, be careful. We wish you well, and hopefully we'll get over this COVID thing reasonably soon. Hopefully this podcast is a happy distraction for you, and you'll still listen once we get all of our lives back. I want to thank David Ferguson, Lance O'Donnell, Chris Zauchka, and David Hardy for donating to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. If you would like to thank us for our hard work with cash, just PayPal, PayPal me at prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. No amount of money is too small, and certainly no amount of money is too big. If you are a billionaire and you listen to this show, I think you should send me a million dollars because that's only like 0.1% of your, in, of your worth, and I could buy a really nice beach house in Maine. So let's get this done. Now, I want to bring on a first-time guest who is well-known in Arcadian Vanguard circles, but this is the first time he's ever done a podcast. I want to bring in, and he's Canadian, so I, I anticipate him being the most polite guest we've ever had. Jace Nakarado, welcome to Stick to Wrestling. From my dreams to your reality, John, I humbly stand before you, and I say the words of the venerable Susie Cream Cheese. Hello, Teenage America. It is I, the Mayonnaise Mustafa in public, if you will, Chase Nakarato. Thank you so much for having me. Everyone does that exact same thing when they first come on Stick to Wrestling. It's, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> Glad I could be uh, part of the crew. <laughs> All right. Now, it is. we are recording this on January 23rd uh, with Hulk, Hulk Hogan's win over Iron Sheik exactly 37 years today. January 20th was just a few days ago. It feels like we've escaped a hostage situation. This pod drops on January 29th, and the next day, January 30th, in Gainesville, Georgia, they had the Clash of the Champions special with, with Scott Steiner in the main event against Ric Flair. We got a whole lot to say about that whole show. But we, you know, speaking of music, Jace had never seen this show before. Whereas I've had 30 years to dwell on it. So someone asked on the pod on the uh, Facebook group, Hey, why don't you make a list of the top 10 Beatles albums of all time? You see, I wasn't around during the Beatles era. So I saw everything with a fresh perspective and it's kind of a different perspective. Like if you're someone like Jace, who hasn't seen this before, he has a different perspective than I do. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to think. Yeah, thanks, John. Um, yeah, and you know what? For, I've said this kind of before online and in general stuff. I'm 31 years old, so uh, this stuff, un unfortunately, has kind of uh, slipped me by. But, you know, being a person of history as well, and the reason why I enjoy such things as professional wrestling is uh, to be able to have that critical look, looking back and kind of just observing what was and taking that into the future as well. And I love to learn. I love to have, you know, good discourse about wrestling as well. And you know what, there's a lot of stuff that I don't know, and some of it is really surface. So like I said to you off air, lead me around by the ring in my nose. I will try to do the best that I can. 
and I will try to provide some insight into what we're going to watch today. And I will not repeat what I said to Jace and Lou when, when, when Jace first came out with that. Some of the females out there may be offended. All right. This was supposed to take place at the CNN Center in Atlanta. And that, would, I think, would have been a really cool look. I think it would have been a, a major league look. I mean, wow, a wrestling show coming from the CNN Center. But. That did not happen, and it did not happen because of the Gulf War. CNN, correctly in my opinion, decided that they're in the middle of covering a a real war, and having a wrestling show going on in the building would be really goofy. And there's going to be a lot of talk about the Gulf War here, and let me explain why. It's not that I want to talk about that or be political or anything like that. It's what was going on. It was omnipresent. It would be the equivalent of if you saw or listened to a podcast 19 years from now about the last WrestleMania, you're going to have to talk about why there were no fans present and why, you know, certain people were wearing masks, et cetera. It was what was going on. And I don't think that's a bad analogy, the, the COVID situation to the Gulf War. Jace, any thoughts on that? I was curious as well, um, watching the show, given how small a venue it was as well, and kind of reading back uh, on Wikipedia as well, just a little bit of an introduction before watching the uh, event. I tried not to read the issues of The Observer that I do have, just to make sure that my opinions are my own and I'm not uh, you know, influenced by Dave's writing or anybody else's. But this was an actual shoot in terms of CNN being, you know, and WCW being worried about it taking place at CNN Center instead of, you know, that fake reason as to why WrestleMania 7 was moved um, yeah. because of concerns over the Gulf War. Okay. Yeah. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, I did something similar to what you did. I watched the show and then I went back to my observer so that, you know, my opinions would not be swayed by Mr. Melter's or, or anyone else's. So, anyway. And like I said, the, to make that point abundantly clear, as far as, you know, the Gulf War going on, as soon as the show starts, the first words out of Gary Michael Capetta's mouth was something about, okay, let's honor all of everyone who's out there fighting in the Middle East with the national anthem. Then the <laughs> national anthem plays and Dusty Rhodes starts talking about the Gulf War. Yeah, that, uh, that was a very interesting start to the show. And going into it, I figured and knew I'm like, not all wrestling shows have started with the national anthem. So that was really interesting. And something funny that I picked up on just because when it comes to these kind of things, I like picking up on the little things that I can kind of pick apart and jab at. I liked when Gary Michael Capetta started and he kind of looked back at the um, announcers to see that they were on the air. I was really hoping that it was going to be kind of a Jack Reynolds Clash 5 kind of thing with a are we on to start the show? Because that was hilarious. <laughs> and the, the funny thing that I equate to it as well is when Gary starts his speech talking about all the men and women, he says, and I quote, all the men and women of the armed forces. So he was singular. And in my mind, that kind of harkened back to kind of a David Crockett, Lady and Jelm kind of moment of Jim Crockett. Promotions. <laughs> so to me, I just found that kind of funny. But, you know, it, those are kind of the little things that I picked up on. But yeah, Dusty was... Uh, he was something this show. That's for oh, sure. Oh, he was something. All right. And you know what? I mean, this was first Dusty's first appearance on a major WCW show since the end of 1988. I mean, he was at the Royal Rumble 11 days later, uh, earlier, excuse me, finishing up with the WWF. And now he's here at a major WCW event. As rumored for a couple of months, I, I remember Thanksgiving 1990, right around there is when I first heard that Dusty might be coming back. And I was like, oh, no, you've got to be kidding me. No one ever learns. And within a couple of weeks, that rumor became fact that he was on his way back to book WCW because he did such a good job the last couple of years, the last time around. Jay, so you, are you familiar with like 87, 88 uh, WCW? Do you have any opinions on it? So I've heard, and just from reading everything in The Observer as well, and kind of listening to podcasts and stuff, yes, I know that Dusty's booking was incredibly grandiose, and it was stale, and 88 obviously was the kind of the death knell of Dusty's booking as well, with the spike and the Road Warrior angle. Yep. 
yeah, I'm assuming that from your perspective as a fan in that time, there obviously was probably a lot of trepidation about Dusty coming back, that he wasn't going to to screw it up again. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would completely understand as well. And I had a question for you as well, because the Royal Rumble was about a week and a half prior with WCW's way of taping shows at this time. I'm assuming that they kind of taped a lot of shows in the can when it comes to, you know, playing things at a later date. Was this Dusty's first live mention on WCW being back or was there some kind of pre-tape maybe a week before the show just kind of reintroducing Dusty Rhodes to the WCW fan base do you know you know I I honestly don't remember but I do remember that he was advertised I don't remember if Dusty himself was on TV I do know that he was advertised as he's coming back and he's going to be the announcer gotcha all right and yeah yeah like I said it was I was one of those people you know I There was a website, I don't know if it's still out there, but they reviewed the Wrestling Observer newsletter, basically barely escaping, like, you know, okay, this is plagiarism. But the guy talked about how in 88, the the hatred was pouring off the readers' pages uh, that the readers had for Dusty Rhodes. And, uh, you know, hatred might not be the exact word, but I wanted him out of there. I thought that was the only way... They could save the company was to have a fresh perspective at Booker. And here he is two years later back in that spot. I mean, it was a kick in the stomach. It really was. For sure. And I mean, with Dusty coming back as well, and this is a completely different topic for definitely another time. But obviously, with Dusty coming back, there was the fear of Dusty's prodigal son, Dustin, Oh, yeah. Being featured prominently. And I know that's been an issue as well with a lot of Observer readers and a lot of fans online at that time that Dustin was going to be pushed down everybody's throat now that Dusty's back in power. And that most definitely happened. And another thing that I I correctly predicted, not that I predict everything correctly, but I got this one right. I was like, Dusty is going to create and now he came back under the strict rule that he was going to be a booker maybe an occasional announcer and nothing else and i'm like dusty is going to parlay this so that they feel like they have to bring him back he's going to set up an angle where it demands dusty Rhodes could get back in the ring at least once and he did it Mm. look i'm going to be honest i'm probably going to spend some time during this podcast kicking dusty around because he deserves it (laughs) for his you know his appearance on this show i thought he was awful but you know dusty and i we kind of i have an odd relationship with him there was a time when i was a big fan of dusty Rhodes in the 70s and 80s and just you know when his booking started rolling off the table in 88 i mean that's kind of when i turned on the guy and now he's back and i don't want him back of course with this show as well and given my perspective as well when it comes to you know Later in Dusty's WCW tenure, I know that he kind of had a little bit of a Larry Zabisco effect in terms that he would kind of put himself over quite a bit on commentary and not necessarily treat the commentary well. With this show, though, from my perspective, I was kind of actively searching for Dusty really kind of just being grandiose and just being over the top in terms of like, I'm the best around, baby, I'm back, that kind of thing. But I really didn't see a lot of it. There were some certain things where Dusty, you know, kind of goes off the rails with regards to the the Gulf War crisis and everything. But, you know, with Dusty coming back and who he kind of wanted to push, there are some people on commentary that he really strongly puts over during their matches. And I think that shows and it's really interesting and indicative of his future booking run that, you know, these kind of wheels are in motion as to his imprint and what it would be. Yeah, I mean, the the best thing I could say about Dusty coming back as Booker, I mean, you know, I was saying it at the time, you know, okay, he's not as bad as Ole, but I mean, if, if yeah. this is the best we're going to do, I mean, you know what you have here, and I, I just could, I was stunned that the company was happy with it. Anyway, the opening match, and it was a hot opener, Lex Luger and Sting, Sting had just lost the WCW title back to Ric Flair about three weeks earlier versus Doom. Doom is a tag team that when they first started Halloween Havoc 1989, they were bad. Then it it seemed like once the masks came off, and maybe Simmons and Reed just did not like wearing the mask. I know a lot of guys don't. It's hot. You can't see as well. They became a really good team. 
Mm. Okay, good to know. Yeah, you know what this uh, this match showed, and uh, I think especially when it, the one thing that I was focused on a lot with Doom as well in terms of seeing the full length of their match as well is that Ron Simmons definitely had the seeds of potential in the next year and a bit to kind of elevate him because he looks like such a badass in this match. Yes, he yes he was. As a matter of fact, and I I knew coming into this match that the wheels were already in in turning that Doom was going to split up and Ron Simmons was going to get a big singles push, which, I mean, it materialized. He had a run against Lex Luger later in the year, but it didn't seem to come together the way I would have liked it to. And, you know, I I don't mean to already start bagging on Dusty left and right, but Dusty was interested in pushing someone named Dustin Rhodes, and maybe that got in the way. For sure. And especially when you were talking about, you know, the issues with Lex and Ron, um, I think when it came to Lex and Ron Simmons working in the match, especially this match, it really didn't look very good. And there was a lot of timing issues that I noticed with between the two of them that kind of just didn't necessarily click when Lex was in the ring. No, I agree with you. One thing I liked about this match was the crowd. The crowd seemed really into it. And we talked about the CNN thing a little bit. You know, they... They had 10 days to get that show ready, to get the tickets sold and everything. And yeah, it's only 2,200 people in Gainesville, Georgia, but they sold it out last minute. Like, I was really impressed by that, and it was a hot, enthusiastic crowd. Mm -hmm. I agree. And you know what? Going into the show as well, Sting, for losing the world title a couple weeks prior, had still one of the biggest pops on the show. Yeah. And the crowd actually absolutely blew when he came out. It was crazy. Yeah, so you had the second biggest match on the show, uh, maybe the third. Well, the second biggest biggest match. We'll get into that later. And I think it was smart because you want people to tune in at 8.30 or whatever, whenever it started. So you wanted them in early, and then you keep them until the end with the Ric Flair versus Scott Steiner main event. Now, I thought it was a, a good opener. Mm, I did as well. One thing that I love to comment on is just the, the sets and everything like that and just the presentation. I loved those black velvet, velvet Elvis portraits that they had around the arena. And the one thing that I really focused on as well was Arn Anderson's. And what I kind of took away from it was, I don't know if there's a lot of comedy fans out there, and I apologize if I'm going off on a tangent, because that's what I do. I, I tend to do these things when I'm nervous and I ramble. There is a comedian called David Cross, you know, if you're a fan of uh, Mr. Show with uh, Bob and David. He had a comedy album a couple of years ago called Bigger and Blacker, kind of a parody of Chris Rock's um, album. Yeah. And one of the album covers was kind of like a velvet portrait of him. And that's kind of what reminded me of these uh, velvet portraits in the crowd. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. When it came to the match overall, yeah, I thought it was a good match. The finish was definitely questionable. I'm sure we'll probably get into that as well. And uh, yeah, like I had mentioned before, Sting was fantastic. Butch Reed looked good, obviously not peak Butch Reed as to what he was in Mid-South and UWF many years prior. Uh, Ron Simmons looked like a badass. And like I said, Luger, and I know that Lex had really good matches in 1990 and 1991. I know people kind of shit on Lex a little bit, and pardon my language. But, um, you know, when it came to Lex being in the ring, especially with Ron Simmons, there were just some really weird, awkward mistimings um, yeah. when it came to one of the Irish whips and Lex came back and kind of did the delayed kind of face buster into the mat. It seemed like Lex delayed on it and Ron either had the right timing or was off. And it just seemed really weird with the camera angle. So that's kind of what I noticed from you know a first time viewer's perspective on the match. But yeah, I thought it was a good match, barring the finish. Uh, you you noticed the velvet Elvis portraits before I did because I, <laughs> I have them in my notes like the, the next match or the match after. I remember just being like, "What is that? And why is it Barry Windham and Arn Anderson who are heels?" I didn't see. Were there other ones? I didn't see them. There were, but you know what? And here's the thing that you know when you're thinking about it. Here's the thing that's either indicative of. You know, maybe their positioning in the company or maybe Dusty's influence or a little bit of Jim Hurd as well. Stings is near the kind of near the hard cam crowd, but it's all the way in the back. And Ric Flair's is literally on the opposite side of the ring, 
opposite side of the ramp. So kind of like the back area and you can barely see it on the camera. It is just underneath the show lights. Okay. I, I did not see it at all. I, I doubt Dusty had anything to do with that. I will tell you that as soon as I heard he was coming back, I was like, okay, is Rick going to remain with this company? Because I knew his contract was up in September and I mean, yeah, Dusty, I want to say Dusty ran him out of there, but Dusty all, well, Dusty did run a couple of guys out in 1988, Tully and Arn. Uh, he mm-hmm. almost ran Rick out. And I was like, this time he just might for real run Rick out. And well, it was, it was a lot of it had to do with Jim Hurd, but I'm sure a lot of it had to do with Dusty as well. And kind of ironic with the Stein, one of the other Steiner brothers being in the main event that, you know, one of the big issues with Dusty and Rick from what I can gather. And I apologize if I'm off on anything because, you know, like Mr. Garrison says in South Park, there's no stupid questions, just stupid people. And I'm pretty dumb <laughs> when it comes to this kind of thing. But obviously, you know, there was that rift between Rick and Dusty about, you know, Rick wanting to drop the title to uh, Rick Steiner. And I know that was an issue. So I just found it funny that, you know, Rick being in a main event with Scott, that it was kind of interesting juxtaposition of that. I'll never forget the day I was a sophomore. And one of the other sophomores asked my football coach, like, coach, I have a stupid question. And the coach just looks at him. There are no such thing as stupid questions. There are only stupid people who ask them. I'm like, I'm not asking <laughs> any questions. Forget it. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, one thing I came into thinking coming into this match was what, and I didn't have the answer, what are they going to do with Sting now? I mean, he has basically, I don't want to use too harsh a word, but no, hey, he failed as WCW champion. Where do you go from here with him? And obviously the answer here was, I'll oh, put him in a hot opener with Lex, but like long-term, like I had no idea what they were going, what they were going to do with Sting. Mm-hmm. And given everything that happened in Sting's later run with the, debacle of a black scorpion angle which and again i don't know if it drew i'm assuming it didn't but obviously i know about the starcade issue with flair being the identity of the black scorpion and yeah you know trying to get a little bit of foresight into the year and my timelines are always messed up too because again i i don't have that uh strength right now to kind of recall this is the 90, 1991 trajectory of X wrestler. And yeah. this is kind of where it's going, but yeah, get, thinking about it right now, I really couldn't give you an idea of what sting is going to do. No, it was kind of, you know, the big mystery. It's like, you know, okay, we've, we've got this guy. He's got some, he's got some talent. He's got some charisma. He's got something wrong with his head because that, allegedly that's why they got rid of him as champion. The black scorpion thing. I think even the densest of marks knew that, you know, A, it was Ric Flair under the mask. It couldn't have been more obvious. And people were going, woo, in the audience. And mm-hmm. that they just threw him in at the end because they didn't know what else to do. It was awful. But anyway, next up, WCW announces its sexiest wrestler contest. I don't remember if they actually did a contest. I kind of don't think they did. Um, but Tom Zank is announced by Missy Hyatt as the sexiest wrestler in WCW. Now, a couple of things. Missy Hyatt, in my opinion, they used her all wrong. They absolutely should have had her as the top of a faction of like two top heels that occasionally team together. I don't know who, but I mean, using her just to announce things like this and paying her whatever they're paying her when they could have just gotten some model in Atlanta. I, I What are they doing? I agree. Yeah. You know what, from what I've seen of Missy Hyatt and everything like that, obviously she should have been used to a bit of a higher standard, I think as well. And, you know, she's kind of the, the eye candy. Um, but you know, like you said, she definitely could have been the top of a faction leading to, uh, to better things. Yeah. And you know, Missy, if you're listening to this, this isn't me saying, Hey, replace Missy with a cheap model. This is me saying, Hey, do more with Missy. Like, let her live up to her potential, and they just never could figure it out. Tom Zank, let's talk about this guy. They, oh, I boy. mean, <laughs> let's not. I've, I've 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 seen little bits of him. I saw this match. Uh, I don't really want to talk about him, but he, please, I'll I'll listen. I'm I'm here to learn. Please <laughs> indulge me on the Seaman, Tom Stink. Please. <laughs> 
I mean, we had a show title maybe a year and a half, two years ago, or I, I, I think it was called Making a Million Dollars with Tom Zank. If you had let me book Tom Zank, I promise you, I would have gotten him over as a superstar. I met him a couple of times. I knew him a little bit. He was he was a good guy, but he was just a naturally arrogant dude. And of course he is. He looks like a GQ model. He won Mr. Minnesota bodybuilding, you know. So and they try to make him this candy ass baby face and they make that even worse by announcing him as the sexiest wrestler. Your audience is at minimum 75% guys who don't look like that. They're not going to like Tom Zank because of that. This is bad psychology. I agree. And especially given that it kind of made uh, some comparisons, obviously not to the star power, but it kind of made me think of like a Magnum TA kind of situation. I know that in the past, uh, you know, John Hitchcock from Front Row Section D has talked on various podcasts and everything about kind of the Magnum in magazines, you know, coming out of the shower and trying to like push him as this big sexy guy and you know given that time as well when there were more women in the business you know in the in the mid 80s i get it but in 1991 yeah it's a bit of a reach yeah and and tom really came across magnum to me came across as a a good looking guy but not a pretty boy tom crosses that line into this guy's a pretty boy and i think that's a big reason why he didn't work as a baby face. Like I said, there's got to be an alternative universe where he's a heel and, you know, someone uses my ideas and he gets over big. Now, I have a confession to make, and I hope people don't stop listening to the show because of this. But I had hair just like Tom Zank in 1991. Oh, very interesting. You know yeah, what? I, Tom Zank, a very, a very attractive man with hair, you know, with that thing. So I'm sure that you probably had. A lot of ladies coming to your door. <laughs> I was like Tom Zeng's less attractive brother. And anyway, the one thing I hated about this, and this is like a new era of wrestling we're getting into. It was Bobby Eaton versus Tom Zeng, in my eyes at least. But they announced it as beautiful Bobby versus the Z-Man. And we talked about this a little bit last week with the Mongolian stomper, like it's okay to have a nickname, you know, it's the Mongolian stomper, Jack stone or whatever his name is. It's okay. If he's beautiful, Bobby Eaton, it's okay. If he's Tom, the Z man Zank, but just calling him by that nickname, I, I hated it. I can can't stand it. It's like, you're saying, okay, this isn't a real sport for sure. And I know that the issue too, when, you know, Z man and Pillman, started teaming up the year prior and when Tom Zank came back into the fold was that they just announced him as the Z-Man. Nobody knew that he was Tom Zank unless you actually saw him and then they alluded to it maybe on commentary. If I just saw the word Z-Man, I wouldn't even know who that was. No. And like I said, I just think in general, especially in 91, I guess today it doesn't matter at all, but in 91 I still think it made a difference. I think I still think WCW should have been presenting itself as just not not a legitimate sport per se, but something that took itself a little more seriously than that. Absolutely. And when it comes to presenting itself uh, you know, a little more legitimately, I laughed out loud because I know with the WWE Network and you know wherever you watch this, I know that some of the music is overdubbed. I don't think it was the case in this case in 1991 because I think that with their production, they kind of had their own theme music and everything. Yes. But Bobby Eaton's entrance, what the what the hell was that? It's just crowd fake crowd noise. You hear somebody saying three, two, and then <laughs> it sounds like somebody like a bunch of kids in the corner of a bathroom yelling Bobby, Bobby. It was laughable. Like, and I know that Bobby Eaton is a tremendous wrestler, and if I saw this as just a Joe Blow fan, and I saw him coming out with that weird music that was just piped in he looks like a schlub yeah i I, you know i didn't even see it as being entrance music i saw them as piping in chants for a wrestler and to this day i've never thought of it that way i was just like oh my god that's the worst they're piping in chants for a heel but maybe if you're looking at it as music it's not as bad but it's still bad for sure all right They did 
a spot in this show. Now, let me backtrack a little bit. Back in the day, Sam Muchnick, who ran St. Louis, had a strict rule against jumping off the top rope. And his logic, and he didn't do it like, you know, Bill Watts did. Like, okay, it's a heel spot. He's like, no, it's a logic spot. If I jumped, if a guy jumped off the top rope onto another guy's head or throat, whatever, he's going to kill him. So we're not going to have that. Bobby Eaton did a knee drop from the top yes. rope to Tom Zank's head, which kind of reinforced Sam Muchnick's theory because Bobby looked like he killed this guy. And of course, yes. Zank kicks out. It was illogical. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it would have made more sense if he finished it with maybe the Alabama jam, but because of the placement of Tom Zank closer to the ropes, yeah, it, it, it didn't work. And also, too, thinking about, you know, logics when it comes to these kind of thing, there was a spot kind of where Bobby is getting up to the top rope and Z-Man does a bit of a drop kick on Bobby when Bobby is kind of in the process of standing up. And... <sighs> I try not to analyze this too much because that's part of the thing with me when it comes to trying to get into classic wrestling is I have to kind of just leave my brain at the door and just kind of accept it as it is. Like I, and, and that's the thing too, because we're so smartened up now that we have to try to, how could I put this? We're trying to like look intentionally for things that don't work and say, oh, this thing didn't work. Oh, this thing didn't work. And I found myself doing that at this one point where Z-Man does this drop kick hitting Bobby and Bobby just kind of lightly kind of rolls off the rope and kind of hits the apron and falls on the floor. I get the flash, but if you, if this was real, Bobby would have flown out of the ring and probably hit the guardrail. So it just, it seemed like a really weird placement to kind of have, but it seems very little. And I'm sure it's incredibly little when you're listening to me talk about it, John, but no. that's kind of what I thought. And that's, kind of my mindset when it came to this. I just thought, well, that's kind of stupid. Yeah, it's it's funny because we have a, a different perspective and I like having different perspectives here. I saw that that spot and I thought it was a very original because normally the wrestler just gets to climb and Tom wouldn't let him do it. And B, I just love Bobby Eaton's bump. I mean, you're right. It could have it should have been a lot worse, but for what it was, I enjoyed it. Mm, fair enough. And another thing too is that after that spot Dusty really started putting over Brian Pillman on the commentary because he initially said as soon as Z-Man hit that dropkick, he said that Z-Man must have learned that from Pillman. And you kind of hear a little bit of a little interplay of Jim Ross kind of trying to pull Dusty back a little bit and try to put Tom Zank over. And at that point, and kind of looking back on the match, Dusty really wasn't putting Tom Zank over very much on commentary at all. but. He was really putting over Bobby Eaton, obviously given Bobby's stature when it came to being a wrestler's wrestler and his experience with the Midnight Express as well. But I just thought that was interesting that, you know, like I said earlier on the show, Dusty kind of putting these little seeds of, you know, interest of where he wanted to go. And I found it really interesting that he was really putting over Brian Pillman, you know, teaching that move to Tom Zank. That That is interesting. I did catch that. Probably we're, we're going to do a 30th anniversary of the great 1991 great American bash. And I can, I will, as that story unfolds, I will give you more of my feelings on the dusty Rhodes versus Brian Hillman <laughs> situation. And you were there, correct? I was there as a matter of fact, well, I'll, I'll point this out on the show. If you watch the very end of the last match was, which was a disaster with, uh, Dick Slater and, and Dick Murdoch against someone because Missy couldn't wrestle in the cage. They found out you will see me in the front row with a giant sign that says, what is my dumb sign? We, uh, we want flair. We want flair. <laughs> so it, it, it's as clear as daylight on the hard cam. If you want to check that out. Ah, uh, now one thing I have noticed or I was reminded of right around this time, 30 years ago, they were phasing out the NWA name and bringing in the WCW name. I think they were still calling it the NWA title, but WCW, they were referring to the promotion as World Championship Wrestling as opposed to just the television show. And I've heard updated versions of why they did that, but the story at the time was that Ted Turner uh, had banned the word national from all of his networks. 
So thus the wrestling promotion had to change the name, but any thoughts on the, on the NWA part going away after all those years? That's really interesting that you brought that up with regards to Ted Turner, because obviously, you know, working with Arcadian Vanguard and, you know, working on the pro wrestling spotlight then and now show uh, with Brian last and John Arezzi, there was something that was brought up recently in a report from the observer saying that I believe we're around late November right now in 1990. And there was a report saying that all the NWA promoters, not all of them, I'd say about seven of them had wanted to sue Turner because Turner didn't copyright the name National Wrestling Alliance when he took it over from Jim Crocker Promotions. And one of the things that I found really interesting in the people that were, quote unquote, suing was, you know, it was Steve Ricard, I think Giant Baba. And I found it interesting that they were still working there, that the Crockett's were part of the lawsuit as well. So I didn't know what to read into it. I didn't do a lot of follow up when it came to that report from The Observer, but I never understood it from that perspective about Turner wanting to ban the word national. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, there were, I mean, every network has them now, and they, they certainly had them then, like a, a list of words that you simply couldn't use. Like uh, one word was foreign. And of course, wrestling has a history of foreign objects. Yes. Oh, international Jim Ross just started calling them international, international objects. objects. Yes. Uh, it was almost like he was making a mockery out of it, which he uh-huh. absolutely should have. But eh, the rules are the rules, kids. Now we get just see Miss Alexandra York as part of the York Foundation, a faction that seems to rarely get talked about. And she announces that tonight at the Clash of the Champions, we're going to have a new member of the York Foundation. I just thought of this. I wish I had researched it before the show. Later on the show, we see Mike Rotundo hanging around with Ric Flair after Ric Flair won the NWA title January 11th. I think Mike, between then and now, had left for the WWF. And, you know, he has this new gimmick, Michael Wall Street, which does well on WTBS. So WWF just grabbed him. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, I'd actually never noticed that. So because, again, when it comes to my timelines, yeah, it's he did go back to the WWF. So that is really interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure who was in the York Foundation, if anyone else at this point. All right. Now, one thing I noticed um, as they are doing the intros and the outros, the, the show is called Dixie Dynamite, and the logo is Confederate flag based. A lot has changed in 30 years. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, the WWF edited out a lot of it, but I mean, not all of it, which surprises me a little bit. I don't think we're going to have a show called Dixie Dynamite anytime in the near future. <laughs> All right. Next matchup, Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin, the 1991 version of the Freebirds against it Tommy is. Rich and uh, Alan Iron Eagle, probably best known as Joe Gomez. Uh, I mean, Iron Eagle, they, they say he's, he's 20. Uh, his Wikipedia says he's really 18 at this time. And like any wrestler, 18 or 20, I don't want to say any wrestler, but like a lot of wrestlers who just start, he had absolutely no clue. He had a dumb name. I mean, this I don't think this guy belonged in a major promotion, let alone on a major show. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I noticed as well when it came to the match. And Jim Ross was really putting over his age as well and kind of saying that he is kind of a youngster. He is still kind of learning and he's a he's a quote unquote young boy at 20. Yeah, when it came to him being in the match, there were some points that I noticed that he was really just overselling to the max and that he just really wasn't kind of clued in on where the match was going to go. And that really is demonstrated with a big missed spot with him and Michael Hayes in the middle of the ring. Yeah, and that was something I the uh, the observer picked up on this, but I picked up on it myself. I mean, he no sold a couple of things. He no sold Michael Hayes left punch. And then Michael got kind of snug on him, actually got really snug on him. And that's when he started overselling and like the match just became a disaster. Yeah, he basically Michael threw him out of the ring, kind of stiffed him a little bit. And basically, Alan Iron Eagle, his wings were clipped pretty much on the outside. (laughs) He was just kind of limp. He was around like a fish. And I had a question for you, too, because you don't see a lot of wrestlers of the ornithological variety. 
Is Alan Iron Eagle, did he ever go by Bobby Bold Eagle? Because I've heard of another Eagle name in wrestling. I just didn't know if it was the same guy. No, there were a a bunch of pseudo Native American wrestlers back in the day who used different, you know, Bold Eagle, this Eagle, that Eagle. Maybe he was Bobby Bold Eagle's illegitimate son. I don't know. Yeah, maybe one of the, you know. Many Chief J Strongbows out there, you know, the UWF Chief J Strongbow, who Bruno Sammartino was putting over on commentary as, you know, Joe Scarpa, the real Chief J Strongbow. So, oh my yeah, God. it's it's a mess. You know, this this wasn't a good match. It wasn't the worst match in the world. But my opinion, like something like this belongs on NWA Pro Wrestling or Worldwide Wrestling. Like, I, I get it. Sometimes you need matches just to fill time, but not on a WTBS primetime schedule. You got to have put out your best two and a half hours that you can without giving away pay-per-view stuff. I agree. And especially with all the participants in this match, too, and just the way that the match, you know, ended out. I found it really interesting that Lee Scott was a referee because I know seeing the stuff with Lee Scott and Cactus Jack from 1990. You know, Lee Scott was taking these great bumps. Was he actually a referee from this point, or was it just kind of something that was put into the match for tonight? Do you know? I don't remember Lee Scott doing any wrestling for the NWA after 89-90. I, I don't know what happened afterward. He did spectacular bumps. There was definitely something they could have done with him. He was a little bit small, but I don't know. I mean... I'm speculating here with all those bumps he took, maybe he hurt himself and they, you know, needed to be a referee after that. Mm -hmm. And especially with his refereeing at the end of the match. And it seemed like a really weird finish with him kind of really getting on Tommy rich and, you know, the Freebirds kind of getting the Iggy on uh, Alan iron Eagle. It seemed like the way that the commentary was talking about the ineptitude of Lee Scott a little bit. Uh, yeah. It seemed like it was was going for a little bit of an angle, and I didn't know if an angle ever came out of this. But going on in the show, Lee Scott does referee another match, and he's, you know, generally competent. So I just, I found it to be just a really weird kind of finish and match in general. And going back into the participants of the match, Tommy Rich obviously has seen better days, but I know that from what I've seen, you know, 89 Tommy Rich, when he came back, was probably in like the best physical conditioning that he was probably ever in as a wrestler. And, you know, he, he looked good. He looked like he had aged about 20 years in two. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to be mean because I'm no prize peach myself. I'm a little bit of a, I'm a male boy. You know, I, I like my mayonnaise on things. And we'll get into that maybe <laughs> later on because that's a running joke when it comes to me and uh, people online. But that and obviously the Freebirds should not be around. And I know they've been so, you know, divisive with wrestling communities and stuff like that at this time. And, you know, 89, 90, 91, Jimmy Garvin looks like he's been floating in the river for three days. He looked terrible. Uh, I know that he was on the gas in 89 a little bit and tried to kind of bulk up. It looks like obviously, you know, his cutting cycle just subdued and he was pretty much just eating them donuts, I guess (laughs) they, you know, and then I know funny enough, I watched the previous clash just to kind of see what the crowd was like. And I know that at that time, the Freebirds were kind of doing this glam thing. They had Rocky King as little Richard Marley. I I just found it interesting that within the span of like two months, they would just kind of go back to just kind of the regular Freebirds and without the crazy glasses and stuff. And they were just, you know, it was what it was. It was just a throwaway match. Yeah, I agree with you. And we probably, you know, again, I I, th- I thought they should they should have gone out of their way to maximize everything on this two and a half hours that they've been given, you know, on a primetime show. I mean, you know, the thing with Tommy Rich, you, you talked about he looked like he aged like, tw- you know, 20 years and two years. It's a fact. I mean, Tommy Rich was a heavy smoker. He was a heavy drinker and probably more than that. You know, I don't want to speculate on anything, but I mean, I know he got in really good shape in 89 to get his job back. And then it it felt like, okay, well, Tom's got his job back and now he's going to go back to being the the old Tommy Rich. (laughs) Well, as long as he's not doing any, you know, derelict things like, you know, and again, this is purely speculation. And from what I've heard in the general wrestling forum of him, you know, crashing rental cars and everything like that. Yeah. Let's hope that, you know, maybe Tommy took out a little bit of insurance this time when he was renting the car from Hertz <laughs> rent a car. 
Uh, you know what? I have heard that Tommy's kind of got his act together in the last couple of years. We have that. Now we have a commercial for the upcoming Wrestle War 90 pay-per-view. And once again, this is we're in the middle of a war here. Okay. The the Desert Storm had just started a couple of weeks ago. It was the first time in my life, my lifetime, that I was cognizant that we were in the middle of a war. I knew someone who got deployed. So we're all kind of walking on eggshells. And they have this commercial where Brian Pillman looks in the camera point and he's like, we declare war. And I remember at the time being like, oh, my God, this is in like really bad taste. And now that I'm older, I think it's an even worse taste. And I understand, like, look, they had been produced before Desert Storm started. OK, but we knew months in advance that the fighting in Iraq could start on January 16th. That was the day George Bush said, look, get out or we're getting you out. And it's not like WTBS doesn't have its own production facilities to clean this thing up. I mean, Jace, what were your thoughts? WCW, everybody. That's, that's really all I can say. You know what? I understand. And I'm assuming there was a War Games match on that pay-per-view as well? Yes, there was. Okay. I get it. Yeah, in hindsight, definitely bad taste. And you mentioning that, you know, Turner and, you know, all the video production, you know, things at their disposal. Yeah, it's just eh, a little bit cringy. Yeah, I'm not one of those people who say, look, you know, take the name war out of war games. I know that it already been established. If you want to call the pay-per-view that, okay, go ahead. But like, you know, having the guys in military gear, you know, in the middle of the commercials, like, come on, water that down a a little bit for me, please. I agree. All right. Next up is we do an interview. It's on two different sets. Tony Schiavone and Paulie Dangerously are on one side, Dusty Rhodes and Jim Ross are on the other side. And I mean, first of all, Dusty is trying once again to put himself over instead of putting Paul E over, who is the talent. And, you know, Paul E, what a great career. Do you realize this is his fifth decade as a manager in this business? I had no idea. Yeah. He's, I mean, one of the greatest managers of all time, and he's getting into the conversation of greatest. And don't you love 1991? Dusty Rhodes, the baby face, insinuates that Paulie Dangerously is gay, and he gets a big mm-hmm. pop for it. Oh, yeah. That's uh, the cultural milieu of the time, you know. That's, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, but you know what? When it comes to Paulie's placement on the show, and, you know, we're going to talk about it in a bit. Yeah, obviously, Paulie gets his uh, day in the sun in the following year with the Dangerous Alliance aspect. And, uh, you know, he was biding his time, I guess, in terms of his placement on the card now, you know, especially given everything that he had in uh, 88 and 89 and, you know, a little bit in and out of 1990. It was what it was. And, yeah, Dusty kind of just inflating himself. Yeah, Dusty stole the segment and we're, uh, stole a segment where someone else needed to steal the segment. I mean, what are you going to do? He's the boss. Yeah, not much you can do except, uh, you know, get the David Allen Co. records out and hopefully uh, <laughs> put on a good smile for the guy. All right. Next up is a squash match. Sid Vicious, Sid Udy against Joey Maggs. Sid, and now first of all, and I said this when they first brought him in uh, spring of 1989. They had to call him, in my opinion, something other than Sid Vicious because that name was already taken and it was kind of a connotation I think a wrestler like Sid would not want. Yeah, uh, especially given you know everything that happened with Sid and Nancy as well. It was, uh, I, you know, I've always liked the name Sid Vicious, obviously with Sid Udy, um, but yeah, at that time... Probably could have gone for a little bit of a change, but hey, if I was a fan back then, I thought it would have been as badass as it would today. So I have no complaints from that, but obviously uh, I have a different perspective. For those unaware, the other Sid Vicious was a member of the Sex Pistols who quote-unquote allegedly killed his girlfriend and then OD'd when he was out on bail or something. I don't know. But they, you know, this was a squash match. Normally... I would not be crazy about the idea of having a squash match on something like this. 
but this time I get it because they're pushing Sid hard. They want to get him over big. I think they succeeded in doing that. I completely agree. You know what? I'm just going to kind of run down my notes of, of what I was going through through the match and kind of seeing, you know, the extent of, of a Sid match and a squash match at that. Number one, he should have been a face. Why the hell wasn't he a face at all? The crowd was che- the crowd was half cheering him as well. And Sid was in the horseman at this time still, correct? Yes. He, you know what? With an entrance like that and the dark light and the rotating stage, he got a big pop. And you know what? I popped too. I'm like, if I saw that, I was going to be like, God damn. Like, this, this guy looks awesome. I would not want to boo this guy at all. <laughs> kind of like when he did the Lee Scott, you know, when he gave Lee Scott the clothesline, he took the inside out bump. And Sid went on his knees and posed. Yep. Uh, you know what? It's uh, he shouldn't have done that. Obviously, being a heel, yeah, a heel. But Sid, to me, at this time, was such a cool heel to kind of get into. Even though he would berate the audience in the next segment as well. I kind of, you know what? With when it comes to Joey Mags, this is kind of my, you know, very limited opportunity to see Joey Mags. I didn't mind Joey Mags as a job guy. I've heard good stuff of his work in USWA, maybe in the next, you know, I think his USWA run with Memphis Mafia was, I guess, around this time, 90, 91, 92. Yeah. Um, I saw him mainly in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. And weirdly enough, my memory could be slipping me. But when I saw him in Smoky in, you know, 92, he looked a little bit on the gas. Like he looked a little bigger and a little more built at that time than he did now in this match. Yeah. Sorry, were you going to say something? No, I was going to say he he he's always been a little bit naturally chubby, but you're right. He's he, 92-ish. He started getting a little more in better shape. I wouldn't say necessarily the extent of, you know, Jim Powers coming back to the WWF in 1994 or oh. something like that, where he just got too jacked up. Like, that was the <laughs> issue. But, uh, you know, I, I was kind of hoping to see Joey Mags take, like, a really big bump from Sid, but... Yeah, you know, it, the match served its purpose to that extent. It was the extent of pushing Sid to the moon. Uh, I found it really interesting with the stretcher job because I didn't really think that, you know, what Sid did in the ring was necessarily indicative of Joey Mags going on a stretcher, but the crowd popped when Sid flipped over the stretcher on Joey Mags. So I guess it did its job ultimately in the end. Yeah, Sid was, d- despite be- despite showing his unreliability in the past Sid was kind of, and he had just recently come back from another injury I think he got a uh, punctured lung or something which is serious but you yes. know <laughs> I mean there are stories in the summer of 90 where Sid was out of action you know he couldn't wrestle he couldn't even travel to just be in the horseman's corner and then we find out that he's playing softball in Memphis <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me in the least. Yeah. So, I mean, Softball you know, Sid. <laughs> that was his nickname anyway. So Sid, mm-hmm. part of the, his gimmick is he has his own EMT team, which were two jobbers from Atlanta and they came in and, and Joey Maggs got taken off on the stretcher. So the segment did its purpose. Now we'll talk about wrestling hotlines. These things were pushed to the moon in the late eighties and early nineties. I just did the math, or I did the math with an inflation calculator. It was $2 for the first minute, 45 cents each additional minute. That's $3.90 in today's money and 87 cents each additional minute. And I have never called one of these, but I have heard that basically they take a long time getting to the point. Like you're not, you know, that first minute is not going to get you anything. Yeah, and you know what? I know that they were also promoting, I think, Ric Flair on the hotline as well um, before his match in throughout the duration of the show. I think they said Flair was going to be on for you know the first half an hour of the show on the hotline. I couldn't even fathom waiting online on a payphone or at home <laughs> and just pumping quarters into the payphone or pumping up your parents' phone bill. Yes. I really, it's just, it's to me, a, a hotline in general it was obviously before my time, you know, I'm, I'm a child. I'm the last of the eighties, you know, 89, I'm a fringer. So I can't really say anything, <laughs> but yeah, wrestling hotlines and hotlines in general, when I was, you know, nine or 10 in 99, 2000 was just a dead concept. And I couldn't even wrap my head around it now. 
Yeah, I was going to say that's that's what I was interested in because like it, it's so before your time. Like you, you know, it's like an eight track tape to you. Like what is this? You know. But anyway, <laughs> the next match: Terry Taylor against Ricky Morton. It is a babyface match coming in, right? And only WCW could do this. They Absolutely. announced Terry. They they're on TV for weeks on end talking about what good friends to Ricky Morton and Terry Taylor had been for such a long time. So yeah, that's the dead giveaway right there. And they're going to be wrestling. And before the match, Terry Taylor gets introduced as the computerized man of the nineties. Only WCW could make an, a mistake that egregious. Mm-hmm. I agree. And uh, yeah, it, uh, it showed during the match as well when it came to the big reveal partway through, but it was uh, it was just a head scratcher when it came to WCW's ineptitude with that, and it just the match was kind of meh to be brutally honest, and especially when it came to the switch in the middle of the match, it didn't come off very well, I guess, to the live crowd because I guess nobody really knew what was going on, and yeah. when it came to Terry's turn with Alexandra York coming out and you know Terry glomming Ricky from behind. I felt like they should have maybe done a promo after the match, at least kind of in the ring or in a standalone segment, just talking about, you know, Terry's turn a little bit. But it was just, you know, dropped in out of a helicopter, as Jim Hurd would say. Yeah, <laughs> that it would just it just didn't make any sense to me. And, you know, I'm sure there was stuff that I was missing. I wasn't sure if there was a buildup. Like you had said, you know, they talked on commentary about, you know, Terry and Ricky being friends. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the only time they talk about, oh, they've been good friends for a long time in wrestling is, you know, it's a dead giveaway. Well, someone's about to turn on each other. I mean, if for those unaware, they they did this thing where in the middle of the match, Taylor suckers Morton, and then they go to a video of Alexandra York announcing Terry Taylor as the newest member of the York Foundation, and then she comes to ringside for the rest of the match. I am not against a wrestling promotion trying something a little bit different as opposed to the standardized heel turn. But something like this makes you appreciate the standardized heel turn a little bit more because this, this one just made no sense. Yeah, I completely agree. I have really nothing else to say. And you know what? (laughs) I feel terrible for saying this because, you know, I'm not one to talk about physicality when it comes to wrestling as well. But again, what I said about Tommy rich earlier, it's very weird seeing Ricky Morton, age about 75 years in the next year and a half uh and you know yeah. what yeah and i know that there have been issues with you know some certain things that you know mr morton had done in his off time when it came to having a good time yeah uh and i don't know if that you know had a part in it as well but even looking at i had to look at wikipedia because i know that when i started watching a little bit more of the rock and roll express was kind of the smoky mountain years and looking up when they did the man in the sheet angle with Arn, I guess this was what, 93 ish? 93. Um, The Rocket Roll Express looked like 55 years old when I first saw them. And I had to go on Wikipedia and look at their ages and they were maybe like early to mid Mm thirties. And I thought, Oh, you know, and I know that people age a lot differently than as they do now. And people look a lot older. Dennis Condry, for example, was, you know, in his, maybe like late twenties, early thirties when he was doing his run, he looked like a 50 year old man because he had that kind of strong physique, but man, it was really interesting to see still a young Ricky Morton kind of in the prime in the, in the fight. And, you know, in the next year and a half, he would look like an old man. I was going to say not to get off on a tangent, but when Smoky mountain wrestling first started and they kind of really built around the rock and roll express, I was like, these guys are acid washed. They are finished. They, they, Jim Cornette, you're making a big mistake. Well, I was the one in the wrong because the Rock and Roll Express were over like crazy in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. I guess, you know, they were just seen as, as big stars coming to small towns. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not much I can say to that, but I, I completely agree with what you said. Ricky Morton and Terry Taylor, I liked the match a little bit more than you did. I thought the the, the end was really good. They were throwing some really good uh, worked punches at each other. It looked really good to me. Terry Taylor, at this point in his career, whether he realized it or not, and on every interview I've seen with Taylor on the subject, 
he still doesn't get it. He after the the red rooster angle, there was no way he could be a babyface. There was absolutely no way he had to be a heel. And if it were up to me, I, you know, he would have done a cocky interview or, or whatever, you know, his standard interview. And at the end, just look at the camera and go, you know, buck, 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 you know, just like screw you. I'm, <laughs> I used to be the red rooster. I don't care what you think. Absolutely. And you know what, for me, kind of as a new fan and, you know, like I had said before, there's only so much wrestling you could watch in a day and in a week. So I try to pick up things here and there. And I know that, you know, I have a little bit of a thing for, you know, in that admiration kind of way, not in the other way for Terry Taylor. You know, he's, I know he's a good worker because I've seen a little bit of his UWF stuff, like in, I guess it was what, 85, 86. Yep. And yeah, like he's a great worker. And yeah, just after that, debacle of a gimmick in the WWF. Yeah, I agree with your sentiments. He just just didn't get it. He he lost a lot of his value on that. And I am like you even more extreme though. Like I thought Terry Taylor could have been an absolute star. Yeah, I know he was a, a little bit on the small side, but when he turned heel in 1987, I was like, you know, and I saw what he was doing. I'm like, okay, a star is born. This guy has it. And then he got into that really bad car accident. And then Dusty Rhodes took over his booker. And that was kind of the end for him. It sucked. Yeah. And I know that there have been kind of, you know, and Terry's conflated this as well. And I know that you've also brought this up on podcasts as well. And I know Terry tells the tale on, I believe it was one of the kayfabe commentary shoots about, you know, him making fun of Dusty Rhodes on a plane and then him saying that, oh, after that, my push was kind of over in WCW or wherever he was. And I guess Terry kind of conflates the timelines as well. And I know I think a lot of us do as well. I don't know if it was this time. I don't know if it was when, you know, in 88 or, or kind of around that time in the WF years. But yeah, I, I don't know. No, t- Taylor and Dusty, from what I understand, just never saw eye to eye. And that had a lot to do with it. You know, it's, it's like, okay, if, if Dusty's not going to push you, you have to go to the WWF and take whatever they offer you unless you want to remain starving in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Next up, we have Sting getting the Pro Wrestling Illustrated Wrestler of the Year Award. He also got Inspirational Wrestler. Um, Bill Apter made the trip to Georgia for this, and it was actually a good interview by Sting, who, who wasn't always a good interview, Jace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've heard of that criticism in the past, and just seeing some clips of Sting, you know, in 87 and kind of him coming into, uh, you know, the NWA at that time as well. He had charisma. And I thought that this was actually a very good interview with Bill After. I, I do agree. Yeah. And it, it told me that Sting doesn't need to be out there screaming all the time. I mean, if he just like does that occasional interview where he steps back and he's a little more serious like he becomes more of a person and less of a character. And I think you need that in a top star. Mm-hmm. I agree. All right. So we're pretty, I hope we have a match coming up pretty soon. Dusty Rhodes does a speech about the Gulf war, which I felt was absolutely cringeworthy. I'll tell you what, uh, we don't do audio on this show very often, but I'm going to let you guys hear this, I think I want to say it's like between 60 and 90 seconds of Dusty Rhodes. Uh, it almost felt like he went off the page and just did his own thing to get himself over. Let's give that a quick listen. But next, right now, I got a personal note for the people around the world and the people, our men and women in the Persian Gulf, baby. Let me, let me say one thing live and in color on TV that this country, the American dream, me as a kid, you as a kid, you as a parent, you as a mother, you as a father, you as people in this country has one thing to thank God about, that we got some men and women that are over there kicking somebody's ass in the Persian Gulf, And And the other thing is, listen to the American dream. I don't want to go around this 
country and see somebody talking bad about our president, talking bad about we shouldn't be doing this. Well, baby, we doing it, and we gonna do it right. And before it's over, I want them all back home, baby, because they are living the American dream. That's it. Ladies and gentlemen, nothing more can be said about that subject. Let's go up to Gary Michael Capetta. I didn't like it then, and I definitely don't like it now. You know, it's a serious thing. Like I said, a lot of us in 1990 were really worried. We had people we know going off to fight a war, a real war. It's, you know, obviously. And Dusty Rhodes is on TV talking about it like it's a football game. Like, you know, and Oklahoma, my Texas Longhorn, they're going to whoop your butt, baby. We're going to kick your ass. And he's like talking about it. Yeah, you all heard it. Like, it doesn't matter if you think we shouldn't be going, we're going. And it's like, ah, I really did not like that, Jace. Yeah, yeah, I I agree as well. I know that, uh, you know, Dusty inflating himself a little bit. And I understand, you know, maybe where his heart was. But, uh, yeah, it was just a very kind of cringy promo kind of in hindsight as well. And I had a question for you as well, John. When it comes to referencing the Gulf War stuff that we talked about earlier in the show, at any time before this point, did WCW reference the Gulf War as much as, you know, obviously not to the extent that the WWF did with the Sergeant Slaughter angle, but did WCW mention a lot of the Gulf War stuff before this event or any time after this event? Not, no, nowhere near as much as the WWF. Um, as a matter of fact, if I recall correctly, it, it kind of went away after this night beyond, you know, we're praying for our troops, that sort of thing. Like, I, I, if I recall correctly, this was the only night that things really spun out of control. And again, it's it's a company, you know, it's not owned by CNN, but it's owned by the same guy who owns CNN. So he can't be as reckless as Vince McMahon. Yeah. I mean, and also, after I watched the show, I read The Observer on it, and there were a lot of complaints about Dusty doing what he did. So Dusty probably got spoken to about it. Yeah, I, I could understand that. I'm having so much fun talking with Jace Nakarado that this episode ran so long in a good way that we can have the second part of it next week. We will continue. We will finish talking about clash of the champions 14. So I hope you're interested enough uh, to listen again next week. Uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want everyone to have a good, safe week. I want to thank our producer lightning Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does. Uh, for Stick to Wrestling, and this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. 